0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Blase Blah Film Chat where we discuss all things related to black cinema. It's good to be back discussing film. You know, I took a little bit of a break to sort of, I guess, reset and, you know, recalibrate. I think we all should do that from time to time. Just so you can get your mind right and focus on goals, you know, etc cetera, etc. Cetera. However, I wanted to make sure that I came with an episode um, in time for Black History Month So hopefully I should have this recorded and edited and uploaded um, before February comes to an end. And since I've been in the mood to create myself, I decided to study some of the classics for inspiration. It's something about watching different filmmakers show the Black experience that just fuels my creative juices. And I thought, hmm, why not go all the way back into the film archives? and look at the work of one of our greatest black filmmakers. And that pioneer would be none other than the legendary Oscar Michaud and his film, Lying Lips. And spoiler alert, I know I've said this on different uh, podcast episodes, but just in case this is the first one you're tuning into I discussed the films thoroughly on this podcast. So if you don't want to know the ending or plot details, then pause this episode until you've watched the film. Then come back to enjoy this film chat. And you can actually find L- Lying Lips on different streaming platforms. It's actually also on... YouTube, so you should be able to find it. So, before there was a Spike Lee or say a Melvin Van Peebles, who we recently lost, rest in peace, there was Oscar Michaud. Michaud was a very prolific filmmaker for his time having produced more than 40 feature-length films. In 1913, Michelle published and marketed his first book called The Conquest. Michelle wrote The Case of Mrs. Wingate, which was the first best-selling novel written by an African-American. And he's quoted as saying, I want to see the Negro pictured in books just like he lives. But if you write that way, the white book publishers won't publish your script. So I formed my own book publishing firm and write my own books. Now see just from that cl- quote alone, you can see how much of a trailblazer and, you know, just a what a forward thinker he was. He went on to create Michelle Film Corporation which became the only black owned independent film company to continually operate through the 1920s and 30s. After rewriting his first book he produced and directed it in 1919 as the film The Homesteader. This silent film was the first full length movie produced by an African American. He was also the first African American to produce a sound film titled The Exile, which was released in 1931. And his last film, Betrayal, which was released in 1948, was the first African American produced film to open in white theaters. Michaud was inducted into the Black Filmmakers Hall of Fame and the Director's Guild of America named him the posthumous recipient of the Golden Jubilee Special Directorial Award in 1986. So with that bit of background on the film director, let's get into this film chat of Lying Lips, which was released in 1939 and written and directed by Oscar Micheaux. It's shot in black and white and has sound. The silent film era ended by the early 1930s. So this would be what was referred to as a talking film. That was kind of the nickname that films with sound were referred to. This film is about a nightclub singer who refuses to date her customers. So she's framed for the murder of her aunt and convicted of the killing and sent to prison. This film stars Edna Mae Harris, Carmen Newsom, Robert Earl Jones, and an all-star colored cast. Edna Mae Harris, who plays the character Elsie Bellwood, she was a pretty accomplished actress starring in over a dozen films during her career, including Bullets or Ballads, starring Edward G. Robinson and Humphrey, Humphrey Bogart. She was also a songstress and toured with the likes of Alina Horn, Carmen Newsom, who plays the character of Benjamin Hatnutt, he was a musician um, as well as an actor who starred in five of Oscar Micheaux's films, including a a leading role in Birthright. Then we have Robert Earl Jones, who has the the distinction of being the father of James Earl Jones. Not only was he a film and stage actor, but he was also a prize fighter. I thought that was a fun fact. I don't think I've ever heard about James Earl Jones's father being an actor. I think it's pretty cool to see you know, a family, you know, legacy like this, where the son, you know, follows in his father's footsteps and uh, goes on to have a pretty big career, successful career, as um, James Earl Jones has had. So, Michaud gave Robert Earl Jones his first opportunity, playing the role of Detector Wazner in uh, this film, Lying Lips. He then went on to star in several films, including the 1973 Oscar-winning film, The Sting, where he played um, an aging grifter named Luther Coleman. Now, let's get into this deep dive. The film opens on a party where Elsie Bellwood, played by Edna Mae Harris, walks in and stops behind the piano player and asks him to play the song Must Have Been a Beautiful Baby. And she starts to sing along. At first glance, it looks like the party was at someone's, you know, kind of looks like it's at a lavish home, but it's actually a club there are couples dressed in their finest uh, dancing in the background while elsie does you know this kind of jitterbug dance that i guess was probably you know i guess was popular for the times while she's uh singing this song there's a fade to the next scene which takes place in the office of mr farina who's a white club owner the clubhouse mom, uh, named Elizabeth, uh, who she's played by Frances Williams, comes down to tell Mr. Farino that there's some male patrons requesting a private party with a half a dozen girls, including Elsie. So the patron offers um, $500 for Elsie, or $200 just for the other girls. So, you know, initially Mr. Farina, he refuses, you know, to force Elsie to partake, you know, in these type of activities. But then he decides to ask the club manager, Benjamin uh, Hadnut, AKA Benny, played by Carmen Newsom, to persuade Elsie to start, you know, dating the customers. He calls Elsie too high hat and he feels like, you know, this would, this would help the business. So eventually Hadna he winds up quitting because he doesn't want to force Elsie, you know, to do what she doesn't want to do. He goes on to speak up for Elsie and, you know, he says he has too much respect for her um, as well as himself to try to persuade her to, you know, do something that they all know is wrong. Something that sticks out in this film is that the dialogue is very heavy-handed and moralistic, as well as being very repetitive. You'll notice the characters will say the same thing like two to three different ways in the same scene. It's like they want to make sure you heard what they said. Screenwriters often do this unconsciously. And I've learned that a good way to tighten up a scene or cut down on dialogue is to cut out the repetition. Once it's been said, cut out the rest of the dialogue that's basically repeating what was just said. But that being said, Carmen Newsom, um, who's aka Had Not, he delivers his monologue with with a, a strong passion and zeal that, just as a viewer, you can appreciate. So Elsie, she actually. Overhears this conversation that Hadnot and Mr. Farino are having about her, and she actually feels bad about Hadnot, you know, losing his job or quitting. Um, but you know, he reassures her that he actually has a new job offer um, to be an, uh, a detective. Actually, so you know, for her not to worry about him. She actually wants to quit along with him, but he tells her, like, you know, nah, keep your job, you know, because she's making more money here than anywhere else, and, you know, she should keep being nice because he likes her that way, and then he walks off after giving her a little tap on the shoulder. So basically, you know, he's just breaking it down to her and, you know, kind of told her, girl, keep your head up and, you know, try to keep your panties on it, it, um, <laughs> as long as possible while I, you know, go ahead across town for this better position, you know, as a detective because as a woman, I, you know, I just don't see anything better for you. The scene ends on a single close-up shot of Elsie's face and then dissolves into the next scene where Elsie sings a heart full of rhythm as the band plays behind her in a full club. Michelle starts with an establishing shot, then cuts back and forth between shots using a mixture of wide shots to show the band and the audience then we see a medium shot of Elsie singing. Then back to a wide shot to show her when she does um, a little dance, and we get um we get a full shot of her white floor-length gown. I love to see this intentional type of editing and shot choices because it just shows the sophistication level of filmmaking that Michaud was using at the time. Back in the day, his films were, from what I read, oftentimes criticized as being technically inferior because he couldn't afford to... um, Reshoot scenes or film from multiple angles, but this scene is a great example showing that even with his funding restraints, he still had a masterful directing skill set. He was probably one of the first true independent filmmakers funding his own films, so he found ways to cut corners and I remember my time back in film school shooting on film can be very expensive so you learn to be very intentional with your you know shot selections your setup and you make sure that your actors are prepared so you know you can get everything uh covered in that one shot and so I think um, Michelle is a perfect example of being able to do this to an extreme high level. So next there's a dissolve into the next scene. He used to dissolve a lot, which was utilized way more in older films than today, I feel. But it's a good tool to show that time passage has occurred. Mr. Habnot and Elsie are now having dinner. He tells her that he has been studying to be a detective for two years, um, that he took the examination and that it comes under the civil service. So this is just a position that he's really excited about obtaining. This actor's performance—it's kind of abrupt and matter of fact, but I like it. Although it's kind of humorous when it's not supposed to be, I think it's it's still um, effective for you know this particular this particular film. His performance. But had not, he's glad he can now stick up for decent girls like Elsie now that he's almost a detective or on his way to being one. Elsie tells him that the Landry boys are probably going to take over his manager position, but they are actually her relatives. And she actually suspects that they are probably... Uh, up to no good and fears what the girls will have to endure. She feels like she may need to quit soon, but again, have not insists that, you know, she doesn't. She kind of sticks it out. So he winds up giving her a ride home. When he drops her off, she gets out of the car and, you know, lets him know that if she finds out he's lying about, you know, having a new job, She's going to have to do something she's vowed she would never do, and that's to take care of a man. He's all teeth and smiling now, you know, just at the thought of that or her offer, I guess, as uh, the scene ends with a dissolve. I guess he would be smiling knowing he basically, you know, he has this woman who's very dedicated to him in the tuck if need be, you know so she's a, a pretty good backup plan. I think this writing is so hilarious um even though it's not intended to be a comedy. it does again ju- going by today's standards come off um, as a bit misogynistic but then, I guess you can also look at Elsie as being somewhat, you know, I guess empowered enough to decide, you know, she could be the breadwinner. I don't know. That's just one perhaps way to look at it. I kind of wonder if she's also hinting that, you know, she might actually and hit the track, you know, aka start a little prostitution if need be to support him. But, you know, I guess that, that would be her way of taking charge. Historically, it's interesting to look at what options were available in society for women to provide for themselves and their family. Um... I guess, you know, it seems like maybe around that time for a black woman, her obvious options were to be a domestic worker of some sort. Maybe even, I don't know, a a teacher, but definitely doing what she's doing now, which is being an entertainer at a nightclub, or, you know, there is always you know, the world's oldest profession, which I don't know. I, I don't know. It could have be a little bit of, of hinting uh, at her, you know, having to partake in that on her own. But shout out to entrepreneurs like Madam CJ Walker, who found, you know, a creative and innovative way to be self-sufficient in a time where women's uh, works were not always valued. So Elsie enters her apartment and notices that the living room is empty and quiet. She observes her aunt asleep in her bedroom. Then she goes to her room to change out of her street clothes. We see her changing in front of a mirror exposing her slip underneath her top and then we see her unzip her skirt before there's a dissolve into her putting on a robe where we see her bare back and a slip bottom which she steps out of. This was probably a little risque for back then, I would think. But she then goes into the bathroom and... Realistically puts on a shower cap Like a true black woman Nice detail We see another dissolve And cut to her sitting in the bathtub Filled with bubbles She talks to herself and contemplates out loud About how noble it is that Mr. Habnott, A.K.A. Benny Gave up his job for her She says she wants to take care of him even though she's criticized other women for doing just that thing for you know their trifling and shiftless men but you know this was dialogue and mindset of the time where it's something that sounds a little I don't know pimp hoish if you ask me The writer probably thought this would be a noble gesture by a woman to a man who came to her rescue. It kind of reminds me of the book, If Bill Street Could Talk, where the dad tells one of his daughters she needs to stop, you know, effing for free, basically, and to go sell her body to get her brother out of jail. You know, I couldn't imagine my dad saying that to me and let alone, um, you know, me taking it. But again, I don't know if she's talking about selling sex for Have Not or if she's, you know, talking about just talking about giving him her sinking money, you know, but it, it sounds a little suspect to me. But continuing on, Elsie's bath is interrupted by someone calling for her aunt on the phone. Initially, Elsie decides not to disturb her aunt when, you know, her aunt doesn't respond to her calling. Calling for her to let her know, you know, someone's on the phone for her. So the caller actually winds up hanging up the phone. So eventually, though, Elsie, I guess something kind of, you know, prompts her to go into her aunt's room to, you know, wake her up. And that's when she discovers she can't stir her awake and that she's actually dead. There's a wide shot of her recoiling back as she realizes her aunt is dead. And then, um... I guess it would be, like, a, a medium close-up shot where she's grabbing her head in, in this, like, dramatic fashion and screams. It kind of reminds me of that Geico commercial where the the little gecko, he asks the editor to show a more dramatic take of him saying, I have a flat tire in that... Um, that british accent and it's just so overly dramatic but again i guess you know thinking of the times they were coming out of the silent film era error where because you know there's no sound there's no dialogue the actors were, were way more animated so i feel like this actress she was kind of uh, using some of those techniques um, uh, in this particular um, scene. But it's still, you know, it, it's still very, very uh, entertaining. We then see a wide shot as she falls to the floor, but quickly jumps back up and uh, kind of stumbles around in confusion. Elsie winds up calling the police and being questioned by two detectives, one white and one black. She explains to, to uh, she explained to them about getting the call for her aunt, the caller hanging up, and you know then her eventually um, discovering her aunt being deceased. The detectives they step away to discuss whether you know her story's. Holding up or not, and the black detective he actually knows Elsie from performing uh, at the nightclub, and he kind of rationalizes that she'd she had to escape from the cabaret around you know nine or ten and come shoot her on, and then go back to the club, and then come back within an hour to call the police. And the white officer says, you know, she seems like a nice girl, but, you know, someone still, uh, killed the aunt and, you know, they need to figure it out, which means they actually need to arrest Elsie. So she's arrested and they take her down to the police station. Um... The black detective, he talks to the white officer into letting her stay in a room with a bed and, you know, not a, a normal cell because he's still looking out for her and, and he feels like he has a belief that she's innocent and they should, you know, go easy on her until they, they get more evidence. She winds up giving him the name of Have not as a person um, that may be able to help her. So then, we cut to the black detective, um, whose name is Mr. Uh, Watsner, at Habnott's door. So again, Mr. Watsner, Watsner, he's being played by Robert Earl Jones. He comes in, and they sit down to discuss why Habnott left the cabaret. And how he's joining the the, de- the detective force in a month. Have Not expresses how he doesn't think Elsie is guilty. You know, he says something like, um, you know, can you imagine her committing a murder when she doesn't even want to go um, on a private party? And, you know, that kind of makes me feel good because, you know, it's like, that's right, Have Not. You should definitely cape for Elsie um, in her innocence. Because, you know, after all, she has expressed to you that, you know, she's willing to take care of you by any means necessary. So, that's the least that he can do. So, the detective, um, Mr. Wazner, winds up inviting him to come down. Uh, to the station. So there's a dissolve to a medium shot of Elsie seated, staring off into the air. Then a knock at the door is heard. We cut to a wide shot of her as she says, come in, and then the camera pans across the room to show Have Not and Wasner entering the room. Elsie walks into the shot, to greet them and the camera ends on a medium shot of, of the three see the directing and shot technique is is just on full display right here in this one scene you know i really wish that i had been watching oscar michelle's film films when i was um you know back in the day in, in undergraduate school because i would have learned a lot when you know shooting on my uh my little sixteen millimeter what was that Bolex uh, film camera, and it's crazy how his films weren't really used as a teaching tool, um, not in in my film school at least, um, and then there are times when you know I see these lists of you know. The, the 10 or, you know, 15 or 20 um, best films that you should watch uh, before attending film school. And Oscar Michel, he he's never um, included in any of these lists. And I think that's just a disservice, not only to his legacy, but again, just to all filmmakers because he's definitely, you know, a legend that should be studied. And again, you know, just for someone who may be new to this podcast, again, I'm pretty much going step by step through these shots um in the different scenes because, you know, I just think it's important to acknowledge the thoughtfulness and skill that black directors and filmmakers possessed. Um, and for those of us wanting to learn about film language and, and technique, it's helpful to take time to analyze and, and break down scenes and, and shots like this. I remember again, back in the day, you know, doing the same thing for, uh, uh Kurosawa films, Warhol films, you know, I, I remember, uh, the kind of film school classic, Battleship Potemkin. That was directed by Sergei Einstein. Eisenstein. I think that's how you pronounce it. I think every first year film, film uh, student has to watch Battleship Potemkin. But that was, you know, a groundbreaking film for editing techniques. Um, and that film was released in 1925. So. I think it's um, important to truly um, break down our black films in the same way to learn uh, techniques. So continuing on, Hapnot explains that he heard the news about Elsie's aunt. Wazner excuses himself so they can talk. Hapnot, he lays out what he thinks the timeline of events surrounding her death is which is that it was several hours after Elsie had come home before she discovered that the aunt was dead. And, you know, uh, Elsie, she confirms the story. Then in another scene, we have the white district attorney and a white detective discuss how the aunt was shot between 11 and 12 uh, at night and that she had to be dead about two or three hours before the body was discovered. They discussed that by putting Wasner on the case as a colored man. He should be able to learn details about the case that a white detective couldn't. Hmm. See, this is a clever detail that Michelle put in the script to discuss the racial dynamics in society and how racial politics work within the legal system and I think that's a very revolutionary thing that Michelle made sure to touch on you know in in the 1930s so continuing on with this scene there's a knock at the door and Wazner he enters with Elizabeth who again is the house mom at the club Elsie works at Her two brothers, John and Clyde, are with her. Upon being interrogated, she reveals she's actually cousins with Elsie and her aunt, Josephine Hawkins, and reveals that Elsie took out an insurance policy on her aunt. The DA notates that this could be a possible motive for the killing. The brother, Clyde, then chimes in to basically give their alibi, him and his brother and um, his sister Elizabeth, by saying, you know, they were at the cafe waiting to speak to Mr. Farino about the manager job that have not had, you know, quit between the hours of 9 and 11 o'clock the night of the murder. His story transitions into a flashback with a dissolve into a new scene, which is a wide shot of the the stage at the cabaret with a troupe of dancing girls in bikini-like outfits with fringe, like white fringe performing a number. These costumes, they they actually look very contemporary. While I was watching them, I, I just thought I could see, you know, Cardi B or... Or Megan the Stallion, or even Beyonce um, wearing them. So that's just interesting how, you know, fashion has kind of, I guess, been consistent over the years or kind of stayed the same. We're not so different. And I like how this scene is set up with this establishing shot before we cut to Elizabeth, uh, Clyde, and John seated at a table they are waiting for mr farino to again interview clive for that manager position and elizabeth she's very insistent on getting her brother this job they discuss how it's 8 minutes before 11 p.m. which is very i want to point out it's very good story structure and you know how they're setting up the plot to seemingly frame elsie for the murder These little Easter eggs being dropped are very, they're very heavy-handed, but, you know, it's still good for shadowing. There's another dissolve into a shot of a tap-dancing man performing as the band um, plays. So so this is shot back um, on the main stage in the club. There were such great dance numbers to, you know, just showcase the talent of the time the The dancer, he's doing these, um, these kind of, um, I guess, acrobats doing uh, acrobatics, doing jumps and splits and and spins while tap dancing. And I would have to say I don't I don't ever remember seeing you know Gregory Hines or Savion Glover doing these type of moves. This is more. You know, Nicholas Brothers type vibe. But the, the the performance scenes intercut between the scenes of the, the prime the primary story are are such a great um, element to this film. So eventually Clyde, he tells the detectives that he was in you know Mr. Farino's office at 11:35. they're meeting so that's pretty much evidence that there's no way he could have committed the murder which occurred between 11 and midnight now cut to Elsie in her cell with have-not and a black lawyer she's telling them that the brother is lying and She didn't leave the club like they said she did. She recalls that she went to her dressing room in between shows to uh, take a nap. However, she says that she doesn't think anyone saw her go into the dressing room to, you know, corroborate her alibi. Her lawyer says that they've got to find evidence to show, you know, that the brothers are and uh, Elizabeth is lying on her. We then cut to a shot of Elsie now behind bars, alone pacing in her cell. A time shift uh, occurs shown by a dissolve and, and Have Not comes to visit her. This is a great shot. It's set up to show the reflection of the cell bars on the wall. And then the camera shows Elsie and Have Not they walk into the shot from opposite sides of the frame and embrace standing in front of the, the reflection. Elsie tells him to, you know, forget about her and, you know, just, you know, talks about how there's no hope. We find out in this this moment that Elsie, she's been convicted. But have not he professes his love for her and, you know, how he's dedicated his life to proving she didn't kill her aunt. His theory is that Elizabeth Green, you know, the club owner, she killed the aunt or hired someone to do it. Elsie provides details about how Elizabeth's husband, uh, Ned Green, actually had a thing for her aunt and was in love with her and visited her often, but suspiciously he hasn't been seen since the murder. Habnot says, you know, this might actually prove a connection and be a missing link. We then cut back to the office with Wagner in the insurance office he asks now that, you know, Elsie has been convicted of murder and sentenced to life, who will the insurance money be paid to? The insurance man tells him that it will be decided by the court, and in the meantime, he tells him that, um, that Elizabeth has applied to be declared next of kin. However, it won't be paid until the court, you know, makes the the determination that Elizabeth is, in fact, next of kin. So, aha! This is finally, you know, concrete evidence that Elizabeth was up to no good. So, you know, this is, this is telenovela type juicy. So, there are a couple quick scenes before we finally cut to a scene at the Reverend Bryson's house. Now, the Reverend talks about how he knew everyone involved in the affair. He knew Josephine Hawkins and Elizabeth Landry when, you know, she pulled the trick on Ned Green back in the day, which caused him to marry her. We see a series of div- dissolves into flashbacks of a younger of a younger Reverend Bryson and Ned Green talking. We learn that Ned was tricked into marrying Elizabeth because she tells him she's pregnant and the Reverend convinces him that it's the right thing to do to you know to marry her to prevent her from being scandalized. Ned eventually finds out, though, that she actually wasn't pregnant. And Elizabeth just wanted to basically steal him away from her cousin, Josephine. Devastated, Ned leaves Elizabeth to go find his real true love, who's now left town and gone up north. Elizabeth and her brothers, they... Uh, wind up following Ned and they find him up north where he's settled and they force him to actually you know get back with Elizabeth and move in and live with her and so even though Ned Green he's still you know in love with Josephine he's living with Elizabeth but he kind of I guess sneaks to see Josephine, as you know, whenever he has a chance to. So we cut to Elizabeth and her brother at home, seated at a table, talking. And Elizabeth asks, you know, what are they going to do now that they have to wait maybe months for the payout? And she complains that the brother got fired from his job so from that you know manager job at the club, so they're pretty much broke. And then that's when uh, Clyde says, for the past you know twenty years he's been a slave of uh, her design, ever since she tricked Ned to marry her, and he says you know as soon as she gets the money he's going to leave her. So now this, this big master plan, it's starting to come tumbling down on Elizabeth. And we start to understand this kind of, uh, you know, I guess complicated brother-sister type relationship that they've uh, had all these years. So we cut to Elsie in her cell you know she's scrubbing the floors she pulls out a letter from her brassiere written by habnot where he assures her that the case will be solved soon and that he still loves her so i think that's a sweet little touch of romance cut to habnot and wasner in a car casing elizabeth's house elizabeth green's house they call over a young man who happens to be standing around. They question him and ask him who lives there. The young boy informs them that Elizabeth's husband left and that her two brothers live with her there. Habnot and Wasner, they then get the boy to come back and meet them later on that night. To lure the brother John out of the nightclub. After they lure him out of the nightclub, they force him. They force him into their car against his will, and they take him to Tolsom Manor, which is known to be a haunted house in town. Cut to the Tolsom Manor inside. It's darkly lit until they turn on a slight light. We see John is terrified as Habnot and Wasner tell him how the ghosts come out every night at 12 and appear. They threaten to leave John tied up with the ghosts if he doesn't talk. Uh, so they, they force a confession out of him. Now there's a sort of awkward cutaway shot used a couple times of John where he's standing in between the two men struggling. Then there's a solo shot of him reciting his lines looking straight into the camera with no one there. So I'm thinking these must have been pickup shots done done after afterwards after the film was shot. It causes a slight break in, you know, the continuity, but you know it, it's nothing worse than what you you know what you see in you know say a, it's a Tyler Perry film or you know no no shade but you know it, if you're a fan of Tyler Perry films then then that, that that's not gonna bother you but this uh, threatening works and. It causes John um, to confess. Um, But he says they didn't kill Josephine Hawkins. Although he admits that they did lie to the detectives about what happened. Apparently Ned got fed up with being in a forced marriage to Elizabeth. And decided to kill Josephine and himself since... They couldn't be together. He left a note for Elizabeth. And when she called over to Elsie's house that night, maybe to you know tell her about the note or to warn her, uh, she realized that when Elsie answered the phone, she didn't know that her aunt was already dead. So in that moment, she decided to frame Elsie so she could get the insurance money. And then he makes the statement, you know, that her lying lips caused all of this, hence the title. So Have Not and Wesner, they take John down to the police station and, you know, they say they need to find the body to uh, cooperate his story. Cut to a shot of a newspaper saying Elsie was freed and John Landry confessed. We then cut to a shot of Have Not and Elsie. She goes into a little speech saying how she planned on taking care of him when she found out he quit, but then everything happened. Um, however, he saved her, loved her, and married her. So, to make her happy, she has $15,000 that she wants to give to him to do whatever he wants with it. He wastes no time and says, well, you know, since you insist. And then the music starts playing and the end card pops, pops up abruptly and the film ends there. So, that was just pure comedy right there. I don't know if that's how the original film ended, you know, or, or if over time some footage got lost or cut, but it was just funny how just that last scene played out and, you know, just how fast and kind of abrupt, uh, everything is, you know, and have, have not just basically been like, all right. And, since you, you you want to give me some money, you've been talking about taking care of me for this whole movie, I'll take it. Now cue the band. You know, one of the things, though, that I found a little strange or a detail that was off was how they said the aunt was shot in the head. But there was no blood or gunshot wounds on the aunt. And when Elsie found her, she looked as if she was sleeping peacefully. I wonder if maybe that was not proper to show back then, or if Oscar show was just like, eh, whatever. They can, the viewer can use their imagination. Also, how the end was so abrupt. It seems like maybe footage was lost or again um, as, I, as I mentioned, maybe ruined or, or overexposed or, or lost somehow. Just looking at all the detail and care of the, the rest of the film. But that's a very minor thing in you know the film. it's still great. You have this really elaborate murder mystery tied in with romance. Love lost and deception. I imagine this film was a seat filler back when it was first released. Something else that stuck out about this film was that Michelle had several white men with speaking roles. And as a director, I'm curious what the on set dynamic was, as you know, with him being a black man. I guess I, I picture the nineteen thirties to be very a very segregated time. So I wonder if there had to be secrecy involved in, in shooting, you know, with a mixed cast and what you know, was there any danger in even shooting this film? You know, like were they worried about the public reaction after the film was released? I recently watched a, a documentary about Oscar Micheaux called Oscar Micheaux the Superhero Hero of Black Filmmaking on HBO Max. And it was so surreal to see actual behind the scene footage of Oscar Micheaux directing a scene for uh, one of his films. The, the camera was set up and he was walking around giving direction just seeing him at work was so inspiring because up until then or or up until you know me seeing that footage he kind of seemed like a myth but but that footage made him more real to me if that makes sense but it, it's a really good documentary about his life and upbringing and journey as a filmmaker. I highly recommend watching it, along with Lion Lips or any of his uh, numerous masterpieces. Lion Lips, again, as I mentioned earlier, it it should be um you should be able to find it on streaming services, as well as YouTube. I think everything is on YouTube now and now and days. Well, so I think that's all for this episode of Blase Blah Film Chat. I'd like to thank you for listening and until next time.